But today we're going to loop back around uh, to that Heart of Discipleship series, 2 Corinthians. Two weeks ago, Dustin, he walked us through 2 Corinthians 5, 3 through 13, focusing on, on Paul's sincerity as he was relating to the Corinthians. Uh, the conclusion of that text just kind of overflows with emotion. I kind of imagine the conclusion of that is like the end of like this, this rom-com where the guy finally shows up at the girl's doorstep. And he's going he's gonna to spill his heart out and say, hey, hey, I want, I want this relationship to work. And he, he leaves it all there, and he's waiting for her to reciprocate, right? Paul says, our hearts are wide open to you. Will your hearts be wide open to us? Paul wants to patch things up with the Corinthians, doesn't he? He wants things to work out moving forward. And he's laying his heart out. The others are laying their hearts out and he's wanting them to be reconciled to him as they are reconciled to God. And today we move into verse 14. We're going to work our way all the way into uh, chapter 7 and verse 1. Um, it's one of those uh, Paul transitions that can give us a little bit of whiplash. It, it's so much so that when others look at this and they're kind of reading in all the egghead scholars and stuff, they're like, oh, I think this was spliced in. Right? Because it just, it's just so quick that he turns the corner from what he was talking about to what he is talking about now. But I do believe that it makes sense in the context. And so if you'd follow along as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you're God who speaks. We're not left to wonder, we're not left to guess who you are, what you desire from us. You have given us your word and I pray now that we would be attentive to your word, submissive to your word. It is a beautiful text we get to look at today, beautiful truths about who you are and your incredible love for us. Help us to engage in such a way. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. We want to begin with the command, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Uh, that's an important but sometimes difficult question is presented in that. What is the nature of the relationship between believers and unbelievers? Those who follow Jesus and those who do not follow Jesus. How are we to relate? What was going on in Corinth? that would merit Paul to give such a command, and why is it important that we even consider that command today? If you recall, the Corinthians have not only allowed false teachers, that is, unbelievers, into the fellowship of the church, but they've allowed those false teachers to teach 
right? To lead in the church, and it's led to all sorts of issues. He uses this illustration of the yoke to describe the folly of this relationship. To anyone living in that agrarian culture, an unequal yoke was a foolish notion. A yoke is that piece of wood that you would use to bind two animals together in order to double your power, whether you're plowing a field or gathering things in from the field, and you did not yoke an ox and a donkey together to accomplish that work. There are differences in size, their differences in strength, their differences in temperament would lead to disaster. And disaster is what we have in the church at Corinth. They were experiencing disaster because of their continued association and yoking with unbelievers, false teachers. And so Paul relays this command from the Lord Jesus, unyoke yourselves. Stop it with these relationships. The foolishness of the situation leads to a series of questions that Paul lays out that he hopes will break their stiff necks and their stubbornness. And it begins with this. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? These are rhetorical, but they're meant for us to think about, aren't they? Paul reminds the Corinthians that in Jesus you are righteous. He's covered this. Chapter 5, verse 21. And the righteous are no longer to partner with the lawless. We are a people who embrace God's law as foundational and we strive to follow God's law, believing it to be what we're to do. The unbeliever does not embrace it. They live by a different set of standards. They live according to a different system. They have no regard for God's law. What fellowship has light with darkness? Paul reminds them that you, you possess the light of Jesus. Again, alluding back to what he's already mentioned in 4.6, that the light of Christ has shone in your hearts. You know the light of Christ. You possess it. And light and darkness cannot coexist in fellowship. Why? Because light dispels it. They don't work together. What accord has Christ with Belial? Is his third question. In chapter 5, verse 17, Paul was clear that believers are new creations in Christ. We are newly related to Him. And there is no unity or harmony that exists between Christ and Belial. Well, what is, what is Belial? It's an ancient Hebrew word that essentially means worthlessness. Worthlessness, but it became a moniker that was given to Satan. He's worthless. And so in this pseudonym, what, what, what is the relationship between Christ and Satan? There is none. There can exist no commonality and no harmony. Therefore, there can exist no commonality and harmony between those who follow Jesus and those who live according to Satan. Number four, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? The believer is given the power and an inheritance that the unbeliever cannot share in and cannot even comprehend or know. And then number five, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Do idols belong in God's temple? They do not. There's no agreement. In fact, in one of the darkest days of Israel's history, King Manasseh put some idols in the temple of God. I want to read to you, this will be on the screen behind me, some verses taken from 2 Kings. It says this, and he built altars, that is Manasseh, for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. 
And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord provoking him to anger. And when we jump down to verse 9, notice what it says. But they, that is the people, did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. What accord. What place do idols have in the temple of God? They have none. Paul's point here is this. Corinthians, you are the temple of God. You are. This is, this is taken from his first letter to the Corinthians where he talks about that you're not to enter into relationship with idols or idolaters. You're to, you're to cut that off. You're to stay away from those things. John concludes his letter with this, this simple but, but punchy line, my little children, keep yourselves from idols because they don't work together. Well, that final question about the idols in the temple leads Paul to his point, our next point. Why are we to obey this command to separate ourselves, to unyoke ourselves? Because we are the temple of God. We're the temple of God. Paul provides another series of these theological assertions, scriptural quotations to drive his point home. I don't know that I've found a, a passage in 2 Corinthians so far that has so much Old Testament relation as to what we're looking at today. But he says, I will make my dwelling among them and I will walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. This is a mashup of Leviticus and Ezekiel. And in these passages, God is promising Israel intimacy. He's promising Israel a true intimate relationship. The other gods, these idols could not promise that. I love when you read in Isaiah and Jeremiah and they talk about these idols that the people are creating and how they're just dumb. They can't speak. They can't hear. They have no cognition. You can't relate to them. There's no intimacy with them. It's a piece of wood and you put some gold over it. God promises his people an intimate relationship. Fast forward to the first century where Paul is reminding the Corinthians that the greater fulfillment of this promise is ours in Christ. Because in Christ we are united. We possess the Holy Spirit of God. We are partakers of the divine nature. We are the temple. God dwells in us. He is with us. An interesting side note here to the quotation that, we take from that Paul takes from Leviticus. In that greater context, Paul, or I, Moses mentions, God mentions that the, the bars of your yoke have been broken. <laughs> Speaking of Egypt. I just love these little connections. Uh, get rid of the yoke. Unyoke yourselves. And he uses the context of being unyoked from Egypt. Now consider verse 18. I will be a father to you and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Paul isn't arbitrarily selecting passages. Here he pulls from Ezekiel. He pulls from 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. In Ezekiel 20, God is promising to restore Israel, to regather Israel to himself after their captivity. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, it is when Nathan is speaking to David and revealing to David that, that God is making a covenant with you, David, and your family that your kingdom will last forever. 
that your lineage will continue in the throne through all eternity. These verses speak to Israel's, the Corinthians, and our adoption into God's family. That he invites us to be a part of it. This is the work of the Lord Almighty. So because of our adoption, because of God's action in dwelling with us, we are too, verse 17, therefore go out from their midst. Be separate from them, speaking of the idols, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. And then I will welcome you. Another quotation, this time from Isaiah 52. We don't have time today to turn there. I would encourage you to do that later. But Isaiah 52, verse 11 is this particular quote. Uh, The imagery in Isaiah 52 is again that of a broken yoke. And so we see that context again. Uh, But chapter 52, if you think about this, chapter 52, uh, speaking of this adoption, leads into Isaiah chapter 53, which is all about the new life that we have because of Christ, the suffering servant who would come and bear our sins for us. There are those who say the Old Testament isn't relevant. The Old Testament is no longer important. And those people are absolutely wrong. We would not have the new without the old. So much of what Paul shares with us, so much of what Peter shares with us, Jesus shares with us, is drawn from the pages of the Old Testament, the prophets, the Psalms, the law. Beautiful thing to make those connections. And at the end of this, we circle back then to this original command, separate yourselves, unyoke yourselves. We cannot turn to Jesus without turning away from the idols. And that all concludes with one final point that he makes. Since we have these promises, beloved, don't you love that? Paul is questioning them, right? He's he's being harsh with them, but they are his beloved heart of a disciple maker since we have these promises beloved let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God let's start here with the instruction that he gives we are to cleanse ourselves from every defilement, both body and spirit. Now, that doesn't mean you've got to create a list. What are my bodily defilements? What are my spirit defilements? He, he's using this uh, to describe all of it. Whether it's your body, whether it's your spirit, uh, whatever part of you is defiled, cleanse it. Clean it up. All defilement must go. And let me be clear that the main issue here, the main issue of separation Paul intends to address with the Corinthians is to separate from the false teachers. That's the context of what we're looking at. And so I want to consider that first from our perspective. We must make sure that we are not allowing impurity of false doctrine into our fellowship as the Corinthians were allowing the impurity of false doctrine into theirs. And that begins with your elders. That's a responsibility that's laid on us to protect and to have oversight I want to share with you, Amos, you don't mind to pull that verse up. Paul's challenge to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.11, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hand on you. 
Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. And notice this next verse. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, the doctrine. Keep close watch on the doctrine. We're called to guard the flock with oversight. As I look around the landscape of our present culture, there are always clear and present dangers. Theological issues, social issues. The main danger, though, is always the same. It's to drift from the gospel of Jesus that's been entrusted to us. If we were to read on in Timothy, this has been entrusted to you, Timothy. This is to your care, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the heartbeat of God, and therefore it must be the heartbeat of the church. The gospel of Jesus Christ. There are always dangers of those who would want to take the implications of the gospel and make them the gospel. We've been living in this world for quite some time now where we, we want to see society change. We want to see the outcomes of the gospel. We want to see peace. We want to see racial reconciliation. We want to see people liberated uh, from, from the, the, the tyranny that they endure in their world. But none of that is the true gospel itself. Those are the results of the gospel taking effect in the culture and in the world. We need to make sure that we don't mix those two up as so many I see today are doing so. It's been done for centuries. Some of these things I do hope that we can talk about at some point in the future. I would imagine some of you are going to be hearing liberation theology a lot more. I've heard it a lot here lately. Focusing on things that are visible rather than things that are invisible. The issue here is always whether we're adding to the gospel or taking something away from it. And we have to remain sure that we understand that the gospel is this. God created man in perfect holiness and righteousness. Man turned away from God in rebellion and God in his grace and in his mercy sent Jesus Christ to come to redeem mankind. And it is our responsibility to turn to Christ to put our faith and trust, not in what we can do, not in our works, not in our righteousness, but in the absolute and perfect and pure righteousness of Jesus Christ. He takes our sin. He gives us his righteousness. That is the good news. Believe it. It's the message that gives us hope. It's the message that we sing about in the songs we sang this morning, that he is a, he's a haven of rest. That because he lives, we have hope. The message we're called to share with the world around us. We cannot let that get diluted by other things. We cannot pull things out of it. Beyond the gospel, there are always doctrinal issues which God's word is clear on, but like the serpent in the garden comes in and says, did God really say that? And the world begins to ask those questions, did God really say that about the issue of abortion? Did God really say that about the issues of homosexuality, transgenderism. Listen, our hearts should break for people who are caught and deceived in these sins. Absolutely and wholeheartedly. 
But what is our responsibility? What is the loving thing to do? To show them the way of Christ. To show them who they truly are. I, I appreciated the conference uh, me and Chuck and Patrick McClure were just at. One of the comments that was made in this particular area, the whole, the whole conference was on human dignity. That we're created in the image of God. And it's not, it's not your, your body that is lying to you, it's your brain that is lying to you. It's your brain that is deceived. We have to approach people with that care and love. Sexual immorality, that it's okay to just sleep around with whoever you want to sleep around with outside of the confines of marriage. The covenant of marriage. How about lying, bearing false witness against others or slander, using words to destroy and to hurt other people. I see so many in the church embracing these two doctrines of the devil, these two tactics of the devil because they see politicians doing it and they see the media doing it and they say, well, we're going to do it too. But the warning here isn't just a warning to the fellowship. I think there's an individual warning that comes as well to those who make up the fellowship. And the, the deeper issue that exists here is, is heart idolatry. I would venture to say that if I went in any one of your homes, I wouldn't see a statue to Baal or some other false god that you pray before. But those were just the outward expressions of the inward heart of the people. And we may have moved beyond those kinds of things and we're more sensible in our modern society, but heart idolatry still exists. I want you to turn with me, if you would, to Ezekiel chapter 8. If you can find Isaiah, which is a large book, there's Jeremiah, Lamentations, and then Ezekiel. This is another angle at what we talked about earlier in the adultery of Manasseh and bringing idols into the temple of God. This is Ezekiel's take. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house, again, this is Ezekiel writing, with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. And then I looked and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man below what appeared to be his waist was fire and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness like the gleaming metal and he put out the form of his hand and took me by the lock of my head and the spirit lifted me up between heaven and earth or earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north where was the seat of the image of jealousy I'll pause there because my mind always goes to what are these other guys thinking when Ezekiel <laughs> goes into this vision I don't know what happened but he's with all these people and this is what he begins to experience but he was taken to the seat of the image of jealousy which provokes to jealousy and behold verse 4 the glory of the God of Israel was there like the vision that I saw in the valley. Verse five. And then he said to me, son of man, lift up your eyes toward the north. And so I lifted up my eyes toward the north and behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was the image of jealousy. 
idols. And he said to me, son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abomination that the house of Israel are committing here? To drive me, me, far from my sanctuary. But you will see still greater abominations. And he brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. And then he said to me, son of man, dig in the wall. And so I dug in the wall. And behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, go in and see the vile abominations that they're committing here. And so I went in and I saw. And there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jazaniah the son of Saphan standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. And then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark? Each in his room of pictures. For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And he said also to me, you will see still greater abominations that they commit. And he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz, the son of the goddess Ishtar. And then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? you will see still greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. And then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? It is too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here. That they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger. Behold, they put the branch to their noose. Therefore, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears, with a loud voice, I will not hear them. Their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces bowed to worship the sun rising in the east. Now what I want you to imagine is instead of Ezekiel being invited into the temple to see the abominations, is the same spirit inviting you into your own heart and into your own life. To see the abominations that we commit on a daily basis when we turn our backs on the Lord and pursue other gods, other idols. Expect these things to bring us joy and contentment in our lives. Expect these things to bring us satisfaction rather than the God that we've turned from. The text is clear. 
Cleanse yourself from the defilement. The nature of man is a perpetual factory of idols. At every moment, something is controlling you. Something is motivating you. Something is giving you purpose in your life. Now as we sit here today, we all know that something should be Jesus. It should be Jesus that's controlling me. It should be Jesus that's motivating me. It should be Jesus that brings purpose to my life. But too often, it's an idol of our own making. An idol is anything in our life that functions in the place of God. It, it rules us. It controls us. Something that we place our trust in and give, give our allegiance to. For some of us, it's idols of control. We, we don't like to turn over the steering wheel of our life. Not even to God. And so when our plans get disrupted and things don't go the way we want them to go, we get angry. We sin, we complain, we grumble. What does that, what does that reveal? That Jesus isn't controlling me. I'm being controlled by something else. Some of us love our idol of comfort, similar to control to a degree. We just want to be comfortable. And when somebody takes my comfort away, when somebody takes my evening away, when somebody takes the food I wanted away, whatever it may be, I sin because I'm being controlled by something other than Jesus. Idols of pleasure, idols of popularity, idols of materialism. How about the idol of religion? I'm not really worshiping Jesus, I'm just checking the boxes so that I look good. So that my works count for something. Idols of relationships. So many people are controlled by other people, aren't they? Their life is determined, their purpose is found in another person. Their identity is found in another person. And I hate to break it to you, if that's you, then, then, then that person's not eternal as our God is eternal. And when they're gone, your life, your purpose, your motivation, it's gone. Political, ideology. So how do we deal with these things? Cleanse yourself from idols, he says. James 4 offers some great words of encouragement. We won't take the time to look there, but first of all, we have to identify them. This is that quest that, that Ezekiel's on with God, right? The Spirit will take us on that quest to begin to identify the idols that are there in our lives. The things that are abominations, the things that are controlling us that shouldn't be. we got to ask good questions. How about this? What, what are you willing to sin in order to get? What are you willing to sin in order to get? Well, that wouldn't be Jesus. That would be an idol. What are you willing to sin when you don't get it? When somebody withholds something from you and you sin, it's a sure sign that idolatry is at work in your heart. Where does your mind go when it's idle, when, when there's nothing else on it? What are you thinking about? What's dominating your thoughts? 
Follow the fruit of the Spirit that's in your, or the fruit that's in your life. It's not always the fruit of the Spirit, is it? When there's anger, follow that anger that you see and, and trace it down. What are you believing? What, are you, what is controlling you in that moment? Where aren't you believing in the one true God who's sovereign, who's good, who's gracious, who's merciful, who says all things are working together for your good? Then confess. Say what God says about those sins, those abominations that are in your life. Repent, turn from the idol. Turn to Christ. Invite accountability into your life. Invite others into the conversation. Talk to others about your tendencies, your weaknesses. Pray. Ask the Spirit to equip you for the battle as you move forward. That's an instruction. But what's the goal we're working towards? What does he say there in verse 1? The completion of our holiness. The completion of our holiness through the fear of God. What's the goal of your life? That's a heart probing question, isn't it? What is the objective of your life? For followers of Jesus, it should be holiness. It should be Christ-likeness. We're striving to live like him, to to be his, his hands and his feet on this earth as long as he leaves us here. And our motivation for this is the promises that are just shared. Therefore, because we have these promises, he says, Promises of the presence of God. Promises of the adoption of God that we're a part of his family. These Old Testament promises, all of them find their fulfillment in the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the intercession, and the return of Jesus. What did he say? I believe it was in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. Jesus is the yes to all of this. The gospel of Jesus is what's meant to motivate us to separate ourselves from idols, false teachers. I want to please him. The gospel of Jesus not only is our motivation, but it's what empowers us to do that as well. I can't be faithful and follow Jesus, or is it not, were it not for Christ at work in me, that he empowers me and he enables me. The Lord Almighty is with you. He's in you. He's for you. Where is the Spirit calling you today to separation? What is, what is the Spirit pointing out that needs cleaned up in your life? What idols need to go? Now that's going to require more thought than what we can give in these moments. I mean, I hope that the Spirit's maybe brought a few things to your mind already today. But the reality is this question we have to take into our week. We have to take every day. What's, what in my life is in competition with Jesus Christ? Second question. Where have you embraced false teaching and false teachers? We have to constantly be on the lookout for this. False teachers are, 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 are false teachers because, man, they're good. It's smooth. Right, 99% sounds so amazing and then it's that 1% hook at the end. We must be alert. Paul's calling the Corinthians, be alert. Question number three, what about your relationships with others? Uh, Some of you have only ever heard this verse used to speak of unequally yoked marriages. What I hope you see is that's 
not the proper interpretation of the text because we're dealing with false teachers, but it is a proper application of the text. It goes back to the question, how do we relate to unbelievers? And the warning is this, to avoid relationships with unbelievers where they have influence in your life. The false teachers, because of their position, had influence in the Corinthians' lives. Marriage would certainly be a relationship of influence, wouldn't it? You can't yoke yourself with somebody who has a different foundation in their life. Deep friendships would be relationships of influence. Oftentimes, uh, business partnerships would be relationships of influence. We, we can and we should build relationships with unbelievers. But they cannot be our deepest relationships. They cannot be the people who have the influence in our lives. Some of you may want to, to butt at me. And as you think about that, I just want to read back through what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness. If I'm following God's law and the person who has influence in my life isn't, we're working from completely different playbooks. It's, it's light and darkness that don't fellowship together. It's Christ and Satan that don't have harmony. There's no portion that they share together. There's, there's no promises that they share together. Fundamentally different. Where and with whom are you unequally yoked as you consider your life? One final quick point of application. Oftentimes we consume too much worldly influence through media, through social media, music. Where do you need to limit the influence of the world in your media consumption? Where are you letting too much darkness in, too much Belial in, too much of the world in? These are questions I want you to consider today. These are questions I want you to consider this week. These are questions that, that I hope in your small groups this week you'll be able to discuss talk through and consider together, pray for each other.